Today I'm going to give a talk based on one sutta in the Sutta Nipata. I've given this talk before a couple of years ago for FFM. It's based on this sutta which I talked to you about the other day. It's called Dwayata Nupasana Sutta. Dwayata could be translated as duality or it could be translated as Diets. Diets mean a group of twos, pairs. Ajahn Tanisro translated it as dualities, but Asma Pikubodi translated it as D-Y-A-D, diets, or diats. It's called contemplation of diats, or diets. I'm going to read it to you and explain this a bit, because this talks about actually 16 pairs of contemplations that you can do. It's all about cause and effect. And unlike the Patichasamupada, or the law of dependent origination, where there are 12 links, here, the Buddha was saying that each of these pairs is sufficient enough for you to get enlightened. Just a pair of cause and effect. This is how it goes. Thus have I heard. On one occasion, the Blessed One was dwelling in Savati, in the eastern park in Migaramata's mansion. The eastern park is Pubarama, and Migaramata refers to Visaka. Migara is Visaka's son. Migara Mata means the mother of Migara. On that occasion, the Uposita day of the 15th, the full moon night, the Blessed One was seated in the open, surrounded by the Sangha of Bhikkhus. Then, having surveyed the completely silent Sangha of Bhikkhus, he addressed them thus, Bhikkhus, if others ask you, what is your aim in listening to those teachings that are wholesome, noble, emancipating, leading to enlightenment? You should answer them thus. For the accurate knowledge of things arranged in diets. And what would one call a diet? This is the first diet. Altogether, there are 16. This is suffering. This is the origin of suffering. This is one contemplation. This is the cessation of suffering. This is the way leading to the cessation of suffering. This is the second contemplation. When a bhikkhu dwells thus, correctly contemplating a diet, heedful, ardent and resolute, one of two fruits is to be expected of him either final knowledge in this very life, or, if there is a residue remaining, the state of non-returning. Very simple. Four Noble Truths. You just have to contemplate on the Four Noble Truths, which are actually a formula of cause and effect. As I said the other day, the second Noble Truth of craving is the cause for the first one, which is suffering, that is the effect. And then the fourth noble truth 
which is the noble evil path, is the cause for the third noble truth, which is the session of suffering. We just have to do these two, it's good enough. You don't have to know all the twelve links of the Patichasmapara. They're so complicated and so controversial. This is what the Blessed One said. Having said thus, the fortunate one, the teacher, further said this. I'm not going to go through this. All the poetry, very difficult for you to understand. We go on to the next one. If because there are those who ask, could there be correct contemplation of diets in some other way? You should answer them thus. There could be. And how could there be? Whatever suffering originates is all conditioned by acquisition. This is one contemplation. With the remainderless fading away and succession of acquisitions, there is no origin of suffering. This is a second contemplation. When a bhikkhu dwells thus and so forth, he also can become either an arahant or an anagami. What is acquisitions? Acquisition here relates to the desire to acquire things, acquire fame, acquire knowledge, acquire property, possessions, all sorts of acquirement, all sorts of acquisitions. Actually, if you look carefully, the whole world is based on acquisitions, isn't it? Everybody is trying to acquire things. Acquire good marks, acquire a certificate, acquire a good career, acquire a good family, acquire possessions. This is actually another form of craving, attachment, desire. This is a cause of suffering. This is another way of putting it. This is the second diet, which is acquisition, which is a cause of suffering. And the third one is ignorance. Ignorance is the cause of suffering. Whatever suffering originates, it is conditioned by ignorance. And with the remainderless fading away and succession of ignorance, there is no origination of suffering. This is the third type. And this is also true. Why do we have craving? It comes from ignorance. You don't know that nothing is worth craving for. You don't have the wisdom to see that all sankharas are nicha, dukkha, anatta. Because of ignorance, that's why we have greed. And because of, we have greed and desire and attachment, we have disappointment, frustration, and so forth. That's all forms of anger. The fourth diet is, now this goes back to the Paticca Samupada, to the twelve links. Not all the twelve links, he just took some of them, not beginning, not end. He selected few. After volition activities, he says consciousness, vijnana. Consciousness is the cause of suffering. When you have no consciousness, there's no suffering. No consciousness, how to suffer? <laughs> and the next one is contact. Contact is the English translation, typical or popular English translation for pasa. In other places, pasta is defined as the confluence of three things. When three things come together, you call it pasta. And what are they? The sense base, the sense object, and sense consciousness. 
When all these three come together, then you call it pasa. To say that its contact is a bit misleading because you think that this and this come into contact. It's not that. Actually, pasa means sense experience. Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling with the body, cognizing with the mind, all are actually pasa. Why? Because eye consciousness by itself cannot see. Ear consciousness by itself cannot hear unless your ears are in good working order. When all these three are there, then hearing occurs. This is called pasa. Is this contact? Contact doesn't sound right. It's actually sense experience. Again, sense experience is the cause of suffering. If you have no sense experience, would there be any suffering? <laughs> This is another way of looking at it. You can contemplate it from so many different angles and they all lead to the same goal. It depends on your temperament, your inclination, what you have done before in the past life. If you have done one of these in the past life, that will work for you. You actually have a wide choice, 16 pairs for you to choose from. After contact is feeling. Feeling is the cause of suffering. Then you go down the Patichasamupara, the next one is craving, and then clinging. This is what you call the progressive link in the dependent origination. Contact, feeling, craving, clinging. In a dependent origination, clinging is dependent on craving, craving is dependent on feeling, feeling is dependent on contact. Contact is dependent on the, the six sense basis. Expenses is, is dependent on the Namarupa. And then that is dependent on the Yana and so forth. But you don't have to see all of them in that way. You just have to see directly that consciousness is the cause of suffering. Contact is the cause of suffering. Feeling is the cause of suffering. Craving is the cause of suffering. Clinging is the cause of suffering. And then ending of any of these will end suffering. The succession of any of these. The next one is a bit not so familiar. I'm sure many of you are not familiar. It's called instigation, aramba. And eleventh is called nutriment. Nutriment. There are four types of nutriment. All suffering, according to this, whatever suffering originates from nutriment. And what are these four types of nutriment? First is our ordinary food. Second is pasa, sense experience. The next one is mano sanchetana, which is volition, mental volition. And finally, we have vinyana, which is consciousness. These four are actually also food by of themselves. These four are the causes of suffering. Because you have food, then you prolong your life. Because you have life, you suffer. <laughs> it's an endless cycle. <laughs> and you have life, you have contact, you have a sense experience. And when you have sense experience, you have this volition to enjoy the pleasures of the senses, for example. Then you have consciousness which is aware of sense, which is part of sense experience. The next one is injita. You're not familiar with this. It's called agitation. And the next one is dependency. 
For one who is dependent, there is quaking. This is one contemplation. One who is independent does not quake. This seems to be a very cryptic and enigmatic statement. Dependent means one is dependent on or sense experience, dependent on wanting to live on, dependent on all our senses, all the five aggregates. Because you are dependent on that, in the sense that you are clinging on to that, there's quaking when you face death. If there's no dependence, you are not dependent on any of these things. You are independent, like Narahan is called independent, because it's free from all this, there's no concern for this, then there is no quaking or shaking, uh, no fear of death. The next one is, formless states are more peaceful than states of form. This is referring to the jhanas and the, the formless attainments. This is one contemplation. Secession is more peaceful than formless states. This is another contemplation. These are for people who have attained high levels of meditation. They have attained the rupajanas. They have attained the arupas, the formless states. And beyond that, they have gone to attain niroda samapati, or the attainment of secession of feeling and perception. He's just comparing these two. Just by comparing these, that can also lead to liberation. These are for people who are so highly attained, maybe their minds are so sharp and so clear and so focused that they just have to contemplate on this and they can get enlightened. The next one, truth and falsity. In this world, because with this devas, mara and brahma, among this population with its ascetics and brahmins, its devas and humans, that which is regarded as this is true. The noble ones have seen it well with correct wisdom thus. This is false. This is one contemplation. Then he turns it around the other way. And when the world regards this as false, the noble ones have seen it well with correct wisdom thus. This is true. This is the second contemplation. That's why when you are walking the noble path to liberation, you are going against the stream. And that's why when you're really serious in your meditation and you're making progress, people think you're a weirdo. <laughs> because your standards are different. What they see as true, you see as false. What you see as false, they see as true. That's why in the Dhammapada, there's one verse which says, the way the worldly gains is one, and the way to liberation is another. Now we are just like playing masa masa, but if you really get serious, you won't be able to stay in the world because they are really conflicting. The last one, happiness and suffering. Again, in this world, because with his devas, Mara and Brahma, among his population, with his ascetics and Brahmins, his devas and humans, that which is regarded as this is happiness, the noble ones have seen well with correct wisdom, this is suffering. This is one contemplation. And then the reverse. They see as suffering, the noble ones see as happiness. People say, how can you be a monk taking one meal a day no sex, nothing to enjoy, so much suffering, why do you become monk? 
<laughs> they see it from one point of view, you see it from another point of view. You see the suffering that they are in, they, they don't see the suffering, they think you are suffering. Yes. <laughs> this Sutta goes on to say that cutting it short, going to the end. And after the Buddha has gone through all this, and he also gave a set of verses after each of these pair, this is what the Blessed One said. Those bhikkhus delighted in the Blessed One's statement. And while this discourse was being spoken, the minds of the sixty bhikkhus were liberated from the influxes by non-clinging. Which means to say, all the sixty bhikkhus who were listening to the Buddha all became arahants. Just by listening to this. So easy. (laughs) The Buddha was saying that there are so many ways of doing it. It really depends on your temperament. Some of you might find the way I'm teaching here suitable for you. Some might find that it's not suitable. You are welcome to go shopping, go around and see whichever fits you, whichever is suitable for you and try out the method. In fact, you can also combine methods. I've learned a whole variety of methods and I myself combine all of them, depending on my mood, depending on also circumstances. The sort of cause and conditioning and cause and effect that I'm teaching you, one of them is talking about suffering and the cause of suffering, which I told you the other day. This is actually a very potent sort of practice and this is what I just did before I became a monk. And doing this actually was the main reason why I became a monk. Because at that time, I was doing introspective awareness without being taught. I just read the Four Noble Truths and I found that, well, it's interesting. And because I was suffering a lot also, having too high expectations, idealist, perfectionist. <laughs> In the university, you have group projects and all members of the group are supposed to do their part. And you do your best, but they don't do what you think is best. Maybe they did their best, but not your best. And so, a lot of frustration and disappointment. When I read this, vulnerable truth this impacted me and I found that, well, actually, all my suffering comes from unrealistic expectations. And I'm sure that all of you suffer from the same ailment. Especially with people whom you are very close to. Your family members. Your spouse. You have lived for them for years and years and you still have this unrealistic expectation that they are going to follow your standards. (laughs) And you suffer every day because of that. I think if you're a mother, you may be more understanding. If you're a mother with three children and each of them have got different personalities and different habits, I think you'll be more accepting, wouldn't you? One may be a very tidy person, the other one is totally untidy. One is extrovert, the other one is an introvert. Then you begin to really accept. Otherwise, you still have this very unrealistic expectation on others. If you really watch your mind the whole day, as I said, it's very important not just to be peaceful and calm. That's just charging your battery. The important thing is when you get up on your seat and you go out there and you do your chores, when you go down for your meal, there's a time when you can learn a lot of things. 
Look at how the mind works. Look at all the suffering and the judgments that are going on in your mind. Judgments and comments. People doing things in a certain way. Things happening not according to your expectations. And there's always this suffering within yourself. You expect people to behave in a certain way. They don't. And you don't understand how things happen in a certain way. And then you jump to conclusions. You have your own unverified assumptions. And you hold on to them. And that's where all the suffering comes from. The more you see of this, the closer it will get you to the cessation of suffering. The Four Noble Truths, in order to really understand the First and the Second Noble Truth, you really need to have the Noble Info Path. Because all the elements are there. You may see suffering and the cause of suffering but if you don't have the other factors of the noble for path you may not be able to achieve the third noble truth which is cessation of suffering or there are some freak cases like for example there's this very famous person called Eckhart Tolle the person who wrote the power of now and the new earth and so forth he's a strange case but I'm not saying that his awakening is in any way equivalent to ours, but he certainly had a very impactful awakening experience and changed his life very dramatically. He didn't have a very good childhood. His parents were not in good terms, and then they moved from one country to another, from Germany to Spain to UK. Instead of going to school, he studied by himself at home. Somehow, he managed to get a scholarship to one of the top universities in UK. I don't know whether it's Oxford or Cambridge. Anybody remember? I think it's Oxford. To do his PhD. And he was suffering all the while from low self-esteem and always criticizing himself for not being able to get things done or being imperfect. While he was preparing to do his PhD thesis, he was so depressed that he was at the verge of committing suicide. And then he said to himself, one night, I cannot live with myself any longer. As soon as he said those words to himself, then he asked himself, I cannot live with myself. So there are two people there. Who is this I and who is this myself? At that moment, he realized that there's no I as there's no myself. There's just a thought. The moment he realized that it was just a thought, he sort of had a strange experience and then he fell asleep. And the next morning when he got up, the whole world had changed from a person who was deeply depressed at the verge of committing suicide, the next morning he woke up. He saw that everything was beautiful and everything was perfect. And he was in this state of wonder for many weeks and many months. He was in ecstasy. He just looked at everything with wonderment and happy the way things are. 
he stopped doing his thesis. He went to sleep under the tree in the park. <laughs> and he lost interest in his thesis. People thought he was mad. because, But it was a dramatic change. How did you change? From being depressed to totally at peace. At that time, he claimed later that his normal chatter in the mind was cut down by 80%. You all know how much chatter you have. <laughs> and you can achieve some sort of peace treaty with them while you're on retreat. <laughs> but when you go back home, you'll be bombarded by a lot of all this chatter again. Even here, you are still bombarded by chatter. If you are really very observant and very mindful, you will see that the mind keeps on commenting on whatever comes into this field of awareness. But he said 80% of the chatter was completely reduced since that time. He had no religious background. And he had no clue what happened to him. He didn't know anything about awakening or enlightenment. He just something strange happened to him and now he's the happiest man in the world. He walked around, looked around all over the place. He went to Hiravara centers. He went to see Achan Sumedho. He went to Tibetan centers and so forth. Asking what sort of experience he had. And then finally he came to the conclusion that he had a sort of awakening experience. But the important thing is that it's not the experience itself, but the important thing is the after effects of that experience. The after effects is that he was completely at peace and his mind was mostly in the present. That's why he talks about the power of now. Well, if your mind is not involved in chatter, what is it aware of? You try to practice open awareness, if your mind is not thinking, not imagining, not dreaming, what is it aware of? The five senses, right? <laughs> and these five senses are in the present. And that's why he always talks about the power of the present. And he tells people to try to be in the present moment. But that was not how he got there. This is what happened to him after he got awakened. Not how he got awakened. In fact, he didn't know how he got awakened. It was a flip shock. <laughs> Actually, you could say that he saw anatta. Because he found that there's no I there. There's no I. It's just a thought. A thought is just a thought. Just like you do Satipatthana. Body is just body. Mind is just mind. Feeling is just feeling. And Dhamma is just Dhamma. And one other sutta is called the Yuganada Sutta. In Yagutra Nikaya Book of Force. This sutta was given by Asmananda and probably was given after the Buddha passed away. He was talking to the monks. He said, any bhikkhu or bhikkhuni who got awakened, who got liberated, and who have declared their liberation to me, would say that they got awakened or liberated through four ways or one of them or any one of them. The first one is Vipassana preceded by Samatha. That means you do Samatha first and after you do Vipassana. The second way is Vipassana first and then followed by Samatha. 
The third way is two of them together, yoked together. And the fourth one is none of the above. The fourth one is that one is agitated by the Dhamma. One's mind is seized by agitation regarding the Dhamma. On another occasion, the mind settles, becomes composed. And then the path arises in that person. In this fourth case, this person was not doing Samatha before. This person was not doing Vipassana before. His mind was seized by agitation regarding the Dhamma. Well, the word Dhamma, it does not necessarily mean the Buddha's teaching. Dhamma is used in a very general way, and sometimes it can be translated as phenomena, sometimes it can be translated as truth, sometimes it can be translated as thing, T-H-I-N-G. Just like anything, everything, this thing, that thing is still called Dhamma. Whatever it is, you are seized by agitation concerning that thing. And then later, on another occasion, his mind settled. You still need composure. The mind settled first, and then only the path arose in him. He still went through Samatha, but it's not Samatha followed by Vipassana, because nothing in the shame of Vipassana. <laughs> the path just arose in him. This is one of those things that is a bit mystical, or rather mysterious. Because we always talk about seeing things according to Anichadukanata, according to cause and condition. But when you look at this set of diets, the last three pairs, one is about comparing the jhanas and the arupas, and the arupas with the succession of feeling and perception, as well as the last two about what the world sees as correct and so forth. That doesn't seem to have anything to do with Anichadukanata, cause and condition, and yet that can lead you to Arahanship. Probably this is an exceptional case. Like I was telling you, the person who does not have Samatha and has just Vipassana is a very special person, quite an unusual person, because most people would need to have some degree of composure before they can see reality. Uh, don't bank your hopes on this experience. <laughs> don't wait until you get so depressed you want to commit suicide, then you think that you might get enlightened. <laughs> I think the safest way is to work hard at it, practice try to be in the present moment as often as you can, make your mind composed, and try to verify anichadukanata and cause and conditioning. That's the safest way. I think I'm going to end early tonight. Any questions? Two questions. First, among those 16 pairs, which one are we practicing here? <laughs> <laughs> That's what I said. It's none of the above. <laughs> no, no. <okay. laughs> right. But I did say about the Four Noble Truths. Okay. That's the first one. Second question is, if there is anatta, then I don't need to take decisions, right? 
because the decision will take it uh, by so you're not responsible correct <laughs> <laughs> i mean sometimes i have this experience like i don't know what to do and then i wait maybe more causes and condition comes and then the decision is coming by itself i don't need to think too much about it is that because there is no self there's no need to worry about the decision <laughs> <laughs> Actually, everything happens by itself due to causes and conditions. People have this wrong view that there's a self. But on the other hand, there's also an element of choice. For example, I talked about right effort. You have mindfulness, you can watch your mind, you know this is unwholesome state has a reason. And you know it's not yours, not mine, not me. It was because of causing condition. But then, if you want to practice a noble effort path, you need to practice right effort. Which means to say, when you recognize it's unwholesome, you need to abandon it. But you don't always abandon it. Sometimes you follow. You're angry, you're supposed to abandon it, but then the anger overcomes you, and then you say and do things out of anger. That's when karma is created. Bhante, just one simple question. Can Bhante share with us after Bhante become a monk and before? <laughs> Why do you all like to listen to personal stories? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Bhante. Other questions first. Bhante, you emphasize the importance of hearing because when you hear Sutta, Uh, discourse, your mind get composed. I realize that when I take notes, I get distracted or I miss a bit right, of what I'm sure. hearing. Right. You would discourage to take notes when you're giving a discourse? Right. During my hiking retreats, when I give talks, nobody's allowed to take notes. Okay. At the end of the talk, they have to use their sati to remember and recollect what they've heard and then present what I said. <laughs> yes, that's part of the group discussion. And do you encourage to write some things, like, for example, I write my questions, the questions I want to ask you, and also my insight, when I have insight. This is okay, right? Sometimes when it's really impactful, you don't have to write because it stays in your mind. If you have to write, maybe it's not so significant after all. <laughs> no need to write at all. <laughs> Unless you want to make a record and later for future reference. Monday that day, the other talk, the samatha, the four steps of making the mind stand, making the mind sit. The last two, unify and compose. Can you explain the difference, the third one and the fourth one? As I said, the third one is to unify the mind, means to put the mind in one place and not allow it to run all over the place. For example, now I ask you to put your attention at the place where you think the mind is. If you don't know where it is, then you put it in space. Yeah, you put the mind there. And then you just ask the mind, what's the mind aware of? Then, initially it will go off to the objects. But then, with practice, it won't go anywhere. It will just stay there and the objects will come to it. So I would interpret that as unifying the mind. It is unified. Then the last one is the last step of Samatha practice, which is when the mind is composed. I said the word 
samadhi. Kam sham sang a and di. Sang means properly, a means spring, and di means place. When we can achieve that sort of skill over the mind, then you can place it properly wherever you want to. That's the higher level of samadhi. Could it mean properly place it on the vipassana way? People who listen to Dharma talk cannot get enlightened, they become monks and nuns, right? Become a monk, the Buddha sometimes will ask them to do all the jhanas, get to the fourth jhana. Then he says, when you get to the fourth jhana, then when the mind is luminous and bright and malleable and wieldy, then you incline the mind to knowledge of past lives. You incline the mind to understand the Four Noble Truths. It's all about inclination. That's what I'm telling you. Incline the mind to understand, to verify the Four Noble Truths. You don't have to think about it. When the mind is composed enough, it's powerful enough, you incline it there, and it's ready, the wisdom will arise. Then the mind has samadhi already, it can properly place where you want to place it. I didn't understand really what is realistic in bar. The realistic means non-delusion. The realistic can be understood in two ways. One is for the Buddhist spiritual path. Realistic means according to reality in terms of anicca, dukkha, anatta, vulnerable truths and cause and conditioning, cause and effect. But from the worldly point of view, realistic means factual, number one, or feasible, doable. Depends on what you are using it for. Are you using it for spiritual purposes or for worldly purposes? Then also I said, even if you use it for worldly purposes, if it doesn't pass the first B, or it passes the first one and not the second one, or it passes B and A, it passes B, A, R and doesn't pass R, and it fails any one of those, then you can go to the spiritual R. Which is to say, you look at how did this thought arise? How did this intention arise? It arose because of cause and condition. Not me, not mine, not myself. That's how you can make use of that as organic fertilizer. Instead of just trashing it, you make use of it to fertilize the tree of wisdom. I don't understand how we can use the spiritual last R if they pass B-A-R. If they don't, I understand you. The understanding, it's anicca, or it's yeah, yeah, how it yeah, arises. Yeah, yeah. But if they do pass, then you act. You don't need to. You can if, you, if they do pass, also you can ask. You can also go back to that and see where did this idea come from, and then you're very proud of yourself. This is a fantastic idea. Who else would have this idea but me? Yeah. <laughs> <huh>? Okay. <laughs> okay. Where did this sense of conceit come from? <laughs> Tell you one interesting account when I was studying in school. I was in university studying housing, building, and planning, and we spent a lot of time in the studio designing. And we had one American professor who was a dean. And you know, Americans are very individualistic. We must all be creative and be original. <laughs> one of my classmates gave a very sarcastic, witty definition of originality. He said, originality is the art of concealing your source of inspiration. <laughs> Because when you want to design a building, you look at other books and then copy a bit here, copy it there, and bit and paste it together and make it new design. Actually, it's not original. It's copy and paste. 
<laughs> Last question. When I meditate, is that like I should take every object, like seeing or hearing, as a reminder to be aware of awareness? As I said, if you can, you put your attention in space or where you think the mind is and just ask what's the mind aware of. That's really aware of awareness. But then if you haven't reached that state, then it's good to be aware of what's happening in the stances to ground you. I mean, I have the attention here in the center and then like I'm hearing and hearing sometimes plays like a, a reminder and up. And get back here. Right. Initially, when you put your attention in the place where you think the mind is, wherever, or in space, then, as I said, initially you'll be pulled by the objects. Let the objects pull you, and then you patiently bring it back. With practice, then you won't go anywhere. You'll stay there, and the objects will come. Okay. One day at the beginning of the talk, you mentioned about like shopping and then combine the different practices. My question is more like, how would you know that it is right to combine because like for me while sitting then just defocus then there was this idea that taught by a Tibetan teacher they say that look at it as if you are in a dream so then I was like try or not uh, you know try to try this sort of thing or you just go and try it out and see whether it works for you is it something like that? I mean you need to have some basic understanding it's good for you to be grounded in one tradition first before you go shopping or else you'd be so confused <laughs> so you have a framework to evaluate things. Theravada is very stable because it's got very structured doctrines. Here it's very simple. If you see that teaching conforms to Anicca the Four Noble Truths are there, which is common to all Buddhist traditions. And the Anatta must be there because some, you could say, heretical Buddhist schools, they promote that there is an Atta. No Atta in the sense of not to say that there's no self, there are personalities. Each of us are different because we come from different conditioning. But there's no permanent, unchanging self. But the word self is only a word. Sometimes people say that Nibbana itself is the big self and you are the small self. But the most important thing is the experience. The most important thing is to find out whether whatever practice you are doing will give you composure, will give you clarity of mind, and will reduce your defilements. Not the experience. You can have fantastic experience in the retreat, but if it doesn't change you into a better person, have more compassion, more love, more understanding, more forgiveness, then what is it for? Actually, the yastik is defilements. If you find that your defilements have been reduced, and your good qualities are increasing, and you have more metta, you have more of the four brahma-viharas, then you're on the right path. Bhante, yep. could you give us some examples of how lay person practice to achieve enlightenment? Let's say, for example, I think Anita Pinteka, I think he achieved Sudapana on his deathbed. No, he achieved Sudapana on his first meeting with the Buddha. Yeah, he walked ah, in the dark energy, the Buddha, <laughs> motivated probably by then, past. Okay, then what about Visaka? As far as I know, all non Renunciants became enlightened by listening to Dhamma talk. I was searching my database to see of any other lay person that we could aspire towards. I think Visaka is too great a role model. <laughs> so if you have any that you could share, I think that would be appreciated. <laughs> <laughs> 
There's some interesting one called Gatikara. Gatikara was a potter. He lived during Kasava Buddha's time. And he was a potter and he had to take care of his blind parents. But actually he was already an anagami, non-returner, but he could not become a monk because he had this responsibility. It was an interesting story because at that time he had a very good friend who was a Brahmin. He's not a Brahmin. A very good friend who is a Brahmin called Jodipala. And that Jodipala was a very arrogant young Brahmin. He knew all the Vedas and very arrogant, but they were good friends. One day, Gatikara heard that Gasapa Samasambuddha was coming this way. He asked his friend, let's go and see the Samasambuddha. And then this Jodipala, being arrogant, he says, what do I have to do with this bald-headed mendicant? He refused to go. Gadikara was very patient, and then later he took him, and they went to the stream to bathe together. And then while they were bathing, then he took him by the hand and stroked his hand and said, let's go and see the Buddha. At that time, if you are not a Brahmin, you cannot touch the Brahmin's hand. If you did, the Brahmin could kill you. I mean, the caste system was so strong. But because they were good friends, and Jodipala knew that he had made a very serious transgression, and he said, instead of being angry with him, he said, does it really come to this, that you willing to make a grave transgression to uh, persuade me to go and see the Samasam Buddha? He said, okay, I'll go. They went to see the Kasapa Buddha, and then when the Gadikara reached his presence, Gadikara bowed to the Samasam Buddha, but Jodipala, being an arrogant Brahmin, didn't bow. He just stood at one side and looked. <laughs> and then uh, Gadikara requested the Sakasava Buddha to give a Dhamma talk to Jodipala. Being the Samasam Buddha, Kasava Buddha knew what his inclinations were and he gave him a Dhamma talk. And at the end of which, Jodipala wanted to become a monk. <laughs> he didn't say he wanted to become a monk in front of the Buddha, but as he went back, he asked Gadikara, you have been a follower of this Samasam Buddha for so long, but why are you not a monk? He said, because I have blind parents to take care of. I can't leave the world. Eventually, Jodipala became a monk. At the end of this story, this story actually was spoken by our Gautama Buddha himself. Actually, they were walking past a forest with a group of monks. When they reached a certain part, our Buddha smiled. And then Ananda saw him smile and asked him, Bhante, why do you smile? And then he told him this story. It says, long time ago, this place is now all in forest. This place was Gatikara's abode. Gatikara used to stay here. And he talked about Gatikara and what happened. At the end of this story, the Buddha said, now, do you know who is Jodipala? That was me. <laughs> that was him. At that time, it was Jodipala, the arrogant Brahmin, and he insulted the Buddha, Kasapa Buddha at that time. He said, bald-headed mendicant. <laughs> but he didn't get enlightened. He practiced during that time. 
Yeah, of course, you cannot get enlightened because you cannot have two sambudas at the same time. <laughs> he practiced under him. He practiced meditation. He learned the Dhamma. And then after that, he went off. He got born in the Deva realm. <laughs> this is an interesting story because he was a layman. We have no idea how he got enlightened. <laughs> but he was a layman who didn't become a monk, although he was an anagami. With compassion and metta, he stayed as a layman to take care of his parents. Just to clarify, was that before Kasapa Buddha? Kasapa Buddha is just before Gautama Buddha. I thought he made that aspiration. Sorry. The one he made it aspiration in Dipankara Sutta, and the one is not found in the suttas. <laughs> <laughs> it's not found in the early suttas, it's found in the very, very late editions. So, meaning we have to take it with a pinch of salt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, noted. I think it's enough for tonight. Yes, uh...